The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. My guest on this podcast is a true renaissance man of the sport of boxing, Mr. Bob Yalen. Bob was just named the president of one of the largest and most powerful boxing management companies, MTK Global. He was previously the head of boxing programming at both ABC and ESPN networks. He's also served as the chairman of the ratings board at the uh, WBC, as well as having stints as director of sports at Mohegan Sun and uh, director of sports programming at the Connecticut Public Broadcasting Network. Uh, oh, and by the way, yeah, he's also a nuclear engineer and one of the foremost boxing historians on the planet. So very interesting guy. We spoke about his role at MTK and the futures of their star fighters, such as uh, Tyson Fury, Carl Frampton, and Billy Joe Saunders. We also went through Bob's time at ABC and ESPN and the state of televised boxing today. I mean, it was a really great, informative conversation. Hope you enjoy. So, very excited to have one of the most knowledgeable, if not the most knowledgeable uh, person in the sport of boxing, a man elected to the <laughs> Connecticut Boxing Hall of Fame in 2016, winner of uh, six, six Emmy Awards for his work at ABC Sports and uh, NBC and the Olympics, received the Sam Taub Award for Excellence in Broadcast Journalism from the Boxing Writers Association, and one of the foremost historians in the sport of boxing. And, and oh, by the way, now he's president of uh, one of the top boxing management companies in the sport, MTK Global. <laughs> Welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast, Bob Yalen. I appreciate it, Kurt. Well, I, I couldn't have written that intro better myself. <laughs> and I left out a bunch, too. I left out the, the whole history with the sanctioning bodies and, and, uh, and you know, your time at ESPN. But... Uh, but we'll, we'll get to all that. We'll get to all that. <laughs> well, hey, let, let me first congratulate you on landing the job as as president of MTK Global. I mean, MTK Global, in case uh, folks don't know, I mean, MTK stands for Mac the Knife, uh, Matthew Macklin's uh, nickname. It's a, it's a boxing management company headquartered in Dubai. Um, Ten locations Correct. worldwide, boxing gyms, training facilities all over the world. Um, you know, a great roster of fighters. Uh, how did that opportunity arise? Well, um, I guess I got lucky. You know, they recruited me through some mutual contacts, and I went over to Dubai, had a nice meeting with them, and, you know, I, I really like the outlook of the company. I like the way they think, the way they, you know, the way they want to treat their fighters, and it became... You know, what I consider a really good fit, somewhere I'd like to really see I could stay a long time. I, I, listen, boxing is obviously my passion, and the way they want to move forward treating their fighters, and, and not just in the ring but out of the ring, really appealed to me. And so I just accepted right on the spot. You know, it was almost like almost no no, no negotiation. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, you know, knowing what what a hardcore guy you are with the sport of boxing and how granular you get with it, I mean, I guess the opportunity to to you know be the 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 man leading a roster of over 150 fighters is is great, and just. Just to name a few of, of the great fighters uh, MTK uh, has in its roster, you got Tyson Fury, uh, lineal heavyweight yep. champ, uh, Carl Frampton, former featherweight champ, um, Billy Joe Saunders, who's uh, fighting for a, uh, a super middleweight title, but a former middleweight champ, uh, yep. Olympian Michael Conlon, uh, who's considered one of the best prospects, Charlie Edwards, the WBC flyweight champ, uh, TJ Doheny, who... who fought like with a massive heart last night um and and just missed uh winning and, and becoming a unified champ at junior featherweight uh great prospect in jack catterall uh nordin ubali the wbc bantamweight champ i mean honestly too many prospects and contenders to 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 even mention um but let's let's talk about Brother, the... i thought i was the one who was supposed to i thought i was the one who was supposed to be good at recent <laughs> I'm I'm hardcore, but no one is as hardcore as you, Bob. I mean, your idea of fun is going to Mexico and going to a library and piling through old uh, newspapers and finding out results. I'm I'm hardcore, but not that hardcore. <laughs> You're but, telling me I need a life. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. But uh, yeah, I mean, we'll get, we'll definitely get to that. But let's let's talk about the big guy first. Let's talk about Tyson Fury. Um, last we saw him, he uh, he. Pretty much outboxed uh, Deontay Wilder, save for you know a knockdown midway through the fight, and then uh, lightning striking in the twelfth, where it didn't look like he'd get up. Um, now you you had you you came on to MTK uh, right before that fight. So what was going through your mind when when Tyson went down? Well, I can tell you, just before the twelfth round started, all I would yell, I was right next to his corner, and I. Just yelling, don't go near him. Don't <laughs> run. Do whatever you got. Don't go near him. Do not engage. And when he saw him, saw him move inside, I was like, what are you doing? Bang. I never thought in a million years he was getting up from that punch. Yeah. You know, kudos, kudos to him. You know, the heart, you know, to survive that round was unbelievable. And listen, this, you know, it's boxing. You know, you can't do everything right, but he fought, he fought a hell of a fight. And, you know, the rematch, if and when it occurs, is going to be very interesting. Um, I think both guys are now obviously very familiar with the other one. So I think tactics on both sides will change slightly, but I don't see it being any less, a, less of an exciting and compelling matchup. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I'll tell you one thing. Tyson, to a lot of people, you know, they read the press and, you know, a lot of things that occur, and they, they think he's a total nut job. Ty, Tyson is anything but. I mean, you, you sit and talk to Tyson's a very humble, very, you know, because you have his quirks, obviously. But Ty, Tyson can be one of the nicest guys you'd ever want to be. Um, he's one of me. Yeah, he seems, I mean, he seems like, a, 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 you know, genuine guy for sure it wears his heart on his sleeve and uh and one of the one of the true characters of boxing i mean he's a guy who you know when when you see that there's an interview with him you you definitely want to watch it because you, you know he's he's a very compelling person um you know a tr- 
tremendous recovery in that fight. Uh, you know, probably an unsatisfying decision with the draw, but. You know, most fans were looking forward to the rematch with Wilder. Then kind of out of the blue, Tyson signed with uh, with ESPN and the rematch was off temporarily. Um, tell me how all that came about, the discussions with Top Rank and, and, and Fury. Well, you know, you have to look at it not just one from one person's point of view or one person's career, per se, but from a company-wide standpoint, the opportunity to hook up with Top Rank, obviously, you know, the premier boxing promoter in the world. And ESPN, you know, again, from all my years at ESPN, I know their reach and what they can and cannot bring to a fighter and a promotional company. So from a, you know, from Tyson's point of view, it may not have been what everyone thought was the smartest thing because, you know, he loses out on the immediate title shot, the way things worked out. But, he certainly didn't distance himself from being in the mix for the next fight or two. And from a company standpoint, it just made all the sense in the world. You know, it, it broadened our reach. It establishes a firm foothold in the U S and at the same time, it allows back and forth between top rate fighters, our fighters. Um, and listen, boxing right now is, is everywhere. Between ESPN Plus and the Zone and PBC, every everywhere, so both organizations need outlet and need products to present on the platform of their choice. Put it that way. And as I said, from a business standpoint, it worked. It made all the sense in the world. And Tyson's in the mix, and Tyson will be fighting for the title again, very you know very soon. Right, right, yeah. I mean, I guess he's got he's got the fight coming up with uh, the German heavyweight prospect uh, Tom Schwartz. I mean, most yep. folks kind of view this as a tune-up fight. I mean, uh, why Tom Schwartz? And did Tyson just kind of feel like he wanted to pull back in competition after such a tough fight with Wilder, especially after that that grueling uh, comeback to lose all that weight he had? Schwartz is not a bad fighter. I mean, people are going to be. You know, very surprised at how good he is. He's a big guy. You know, it's it's it may be viewed as a tune-up, but it is a dangerous tune-up. And I'm not saying it just, you know, as as president of the company. uh, I'm sure I'm going to be biting my fingernails to the to the nubs or whatever, you know, before he gets in the ring. Um, Again, anytime you get into a boxing ring with somebody as big as a Tom Schwartz, and who knows what he's doing. You know, twenty-four and oh, he, he's been with some some halfway decent prospects and guys who are going to test him. So he he knows what he's doing in a boxing ring. So any tune-up is a dangerous tune-up, and this is exceptionally dangerous in the position Tyson's in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all, it seems to me like all, all these heavyweights, you know, are very exciting and very vulnerable. So. Uh... You know, and there's a lot of money to be made, uh, you know, with the big three fighting each other. But, I mean, I guess going forward, I mean, I, I saw Oscar. I was very surprised that Oscar Rivas uh, is taking a fight with uh, Dillian White in England um, because he was one of the one of the guys on the, the top-ranked roster who I kind of saw as a potential Tyson opponent. Um, you know, with, with Rivas kind of out of the way, I mean, can we expect to see Tyson in with uh, – with either in a rematch with Wilder or possibly a huge UK fight with, with Joshua by the end of 2019? I would hope so. Um, again, everyone's got their own agenda right now with upcoming fights. You know, 
obviously Joshua, depending on who he gets the ring with June 1st. The fights after that are still very much under consideration right now. So the, the next iteration is very, very dependent on how everyone comes out of that three-week period coming up. You know, with Deontay fighting Brazil and um, Joshua against TBA. So we'll, we'll see how it develops. But I, I would hope that Tyson's in the ring with one of them September, October. And if not, probably in the March, April time period next year. But again, it, it, is, it is tough to say. And again, with the way between boxing politics and the networks and everything else are moving, it, it's, it is really tough to nail down a, a real firm time schedule at this point. Right, right, because everyone's on, you know, you've got the three, you know, well, I guess PBC occupies two networks, but you've kind of got like the three major players with, uh, you know, Fox Showtime, you know, with, with Wilder and ESPN with Tyson and and uh, DAZN with uh, with Joshua. Yeah, I guess it, it complicates things even further. <laughs> sure, but again, again, as in boxing past, listen, did, did Bob Arum and Don King love each other? Uh, I would say that. <laughs> Something I, I wouldn't say they were, they were bedfellows, but they were smart, smart businessmen. So they didn't have to love each other, but they could certainly work together. And for the betterment of boxing, they put on some of the biggest fights in history working together. So you you would hope everyone has the same point of view at this you know at this juncture and says, okay, what's what's the smartest? What's the best thing for boxing right now? It's to put. A versus B, and then the winner versus B, and however you want to position, a round robin or whatever the case may be. But you just can't keep them out. You just can't not let them fight each other because of a network. That would be the worst thing possible for the fans and for boxing. Completely agree. Completely agree. I mean, those those three. I mean, the the people want to see those guys fighting each other. You know, so I'm really hoping that by the end of 2019, you know, at least two of the three will will get in there with each other and and hopefully you know face the third uh, sometime in 2020. But uh, uh, we could talk about Tyson all day. But you've got so many great fighters. I want to talk about uh, Carl Frampton. Um, real tough loss, kind of a upset loss to to Josh Warrington uh, last year. Also inked a deal with uh, with Top Rank in March. Um, how did that come about? Same same thing. Um, just good business. Um, Carl was having promotional issues with some people, and it, it just works out better for Carl all around. He wanted to change. Um, Top Rank's obviously got solid featherweights and solid 130-pounders that Carl can get in the ring with. And so, again, it just made good business sense for Carl to be on this side of the pond for now with top rank in their stable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, everyone's kind of salivating to see if, uh, you know, an Oscar Valdez and, and Carl Frampton fight would just be such a great, great fight to make. Is that kind of, you know, in the offing maybe for 2019? Cross my fingers. <laughs> I know Oscar just picked a new opponent for June 8th. So, and, you know, Carl's got to have to be fight. So, hopefully, late third quarter, maybe early fourth quarter, look at something like that. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's that's music to my and, ears. And yeah, and Carl's got to get fully, you know, 100% healthy. He's got a few, you know, little nagging injuries he's got to get over. You know, nothing major that anybody has to worry about. Um, so, he's got just got to get into the fighting shape that he was, when you know, coming up 
Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know when you've been at it as long as Carl, there's, it seems like in, inevitably these guys have like these these nagging injuries, and it's 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 a shame, but that's just kind of the price of being in the business. Um, yeah. Speaking of, let's let's talk about a, another one of the of of the great fighters that MTK has, and, and Billy Joe Saunders, and and um, Billy Joe couldn't have had a rougher 2018. I mean, and and he came off such a great performance in uh, it was a December of 2017 when he shut out Lemieux, David Lemieux. Yeah, looked like he, you know, 2018 he had, he had big things coming up, and you know, unification fight with GGG almost happened, but. He went when Canelo tested positive, but, but that didn't didn't quite come off. And he had a few run-ins with the law, and the and the BBBFC, and uh, then the proposed fight with Demetrius Andre got postponed because he had his own positive test. Which I don't know. To that that was a whole controversy and can of worms in itself. I'm not sure that uh, that uh, that the commission got it right uh, by not licensing him. But um, no, uh, I, I you know from my standpoint, I would say. In- Again, not saying it from as my position with MPK, but even a casual observer, they got it wrong. Yeah, I mean, when you say that you 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 follow the water code, how do you suspend that guy? <laughs> the water code says it's an it's an out of competition. You know, if it's it's only an in competition violation. So I don't know. I I, I thought they and got Billy that Joe wrong. Is best, you know, listen, Billy Joe can be his own worst enemy without question. Some of the things he does. You know, we're, we're taught, we talk to him and we explain things to him and he, he's getting it more and more. But this one was absolutely, he was upfront about the medicine he was taking and didn't try to hide the thing. And I think we were all stunned when the announcement was made that, you know, the, the testing positive, I don't think we didn't expect it, but we knew it was already out there and the, the British board had okayed it. So we weren't worried. Nobody's worried about anything. Right. And the way things occurred, it was just, it was handled poorly. Handled very poorly. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think I heard on on another podcast, a British podcast, um, where um, I think one of the 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 chief people from, I think was it, is it's it's UK's UK's uh, anti-doping agency. um, Yeah. 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 They actually spoke to, to Margaret about it. And the thing with Margaret, too, Margaret just tests. She doesn't adjudicate, you know? So it's not like, you know, people say, oh, well, he failed, you know, under VADA. He tested positive for something under VADA, but he didn't fail, you know, like anything, you know? that The adjudication part comes from the commissions. And, um, you know, again, I thought that was handled wrongly. And I know there are people who feel strongly the other way that, hey, he tested positive for something, you know, he was he was trying to cheat, this and that. So, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I... To me, you know, th- th- this is one spot where you know boxing really, really needs to get itself together. Just a consistent uh, anti-doping policy. It's very frustrating. And, and it really is. Listen, as you said, it's it's for the you know the attempted betterment of the sport between Vada and Wada and Yukata. Um, but as you said, there has to be standards. There has to be unified standards. And that's you know when I was with the WBC and we were working on. The, the Vada side of things, you would bust head slightly with, you know, the British board because they use their their facility in Yukata, and there, there's slight differences where the fighters were like, well, I'm not going to sign up for one because it's different standards. And again, it, it would be the Billy Joe Saunders case, you know, time and time again, 
and that, that, that's problematic. You know, so there, there isn't any real reason that a World Congress, or call it what you might, should be convened where they just literally standardize most, if not all, the testing or the, the, the real problematic drugs or substances that have, that have to be looked at. And it, it, it real maybe I'm looking at it from a too, too much of an altruistic point of view, but it seems like it should not be that big of an issue or big of a deal, and it would help everybody across the board. Completely agree. Completely agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've been advocating, and I'm sure you have uh, as well, for for some sort of, uh, you know, uh, league or association with the sport where you know we we kind of get you know uh, a worldwide body that 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 you know can settle all of these things and and so on. But uh, you know, that's that's like herding cats. But um, <laughs> with 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 Billy Joe, I mean, he's got this upcoming fight with the uh, uh, Shafat uh, Isufi. Um, has mm-hmm. it been confirmed whether that's going to be for the interim or the full uh, WBO uh, super middleweight title? Still waiting. Still waiting. Okay. Yeah, Pac will make a decision shortly. I got you because I, I thought I I saw somewhere on Twitter that Aram had basically said that Ramirez is moving up, but. Um, maybe that's not official yet. So, <laughs> and that's, that's basically it. He's, he's he's made it very clear that he's moving up. But as far as I know, as, as, you, as you're saying, there's nothing that's been done officially. Right, right. So where where do you see Billy Joe? You know, should he win this fight? Where do you see what what fights make sense for him at at, at 68? Well, you know, right now, six, like all the divisions right now, right now have a lot of solid matchups. So, you know, I, I would love to say we'll keep him 68 with a number of MTK fighters and keep it in-house. That, you know, that'd be wonderful, but not. There's too many matches to be made out at 68, and a number of fighters who want to move up from 60. You know, Billy's one of the fighters. He doesn't look like a world beater, per se. You, you know, you look at him and he's not one of these monsters that you shy away from. But you get in the ring with them and you can't beat them. Right. You know, and that's, that, those, those are the dangerous guys. Absolutely. He's, he's just a competitor. You know, I mean, he will find a way to win. And he's, he's a beautiful boxer when, he, when he's in shape. I mean, he's, he's very tough to hit, very elusive. Um, Absolutely. And listen, right now, just in Europe, say, you know, look at the Chris Eubank, the Callum Smiths, you know, they got, there's a bunch of guys out there at 68 that would make terrific matchups just just in the UK. And there's, you know, the Caleb Plants and, you know, all these guys in the, in the U.S. And even, as you figure, a guy like the ex-IBF champ, who's Kategi, would be a really solid matchup for him because he's going to be really aggressive and come right, right into Billy Joe. Right. There's, a, there's a lot of matchups for him at 68. Yeah, the, obviously the marquee one would be Callum Smith. I think that'd be a huge fight in the UK. I think, uh, and Callum oh, Smith yeah. is definitely looking for a dance partner. He's, you know, he won the we won the WBSS and hasn't hasn't fought since. <laughs> I mean, he's supposed to fight yeah. on the Joshua card, but they, they still don't have an opponent. I mean, it's that's crazy. So, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's, that's and it's too bad. You know, he's a he's a beautiful fighter as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, so, again, that's why the U.K. right now is such a hotbed of boxing. To think, you know, again, Chris Eubank is, you know, he could be the villain in any situation and then do great with it. Right, right, right. Absolutely. 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 So, hey, I mean, you, you've got this huge roster of fighters. I mean, I've named, you know, just a, a couple of them. Um, talk, talk about some of the guys you're most excited about uh, making fights for in the, in the next, in a, next couple of months. Well, we, again, because we've got so many fighters. There's a, lot, there's a lot of nice prospects that we've been finding lately that are just getting going that those are the real fun ones you'll look at, you know, because you build them from square one. Right. But, you know, did, did Michael Elliott will just spot, you know, did, did the, I hate to say there's too many that I don't, I don't want to bore you all day. <laughs> but we, we just have a lot of up-and-coming guys that I think will do really, really well. And, you know, you get a build for the future. So that's why we're trying to get the guys who are just cutting out now. We've got a bunch of guys who are 10 and 0, 12 and 2, to take it over a couple of years. And the same guys, you got the established fighters. You know, you were trying to build for, build for the long run. We right. don't want to, you know, this is not a one and done. It's not a two, three year project. This is a long term project. Absolutely. I mean, you guys have, uh, you know, over 150 fighters, um, most of which are in the UK, but you do have you know fighters from all over the world, but but not much of a US presence yet. I mean, do you, do you plan to find to sign more uh, US fighters? You know, we want to try to, but in that aspect, obviously we're at a, a bit bit of a disadvantage because the established promoters are already here, and it, it, it would be hard to spend the amount of money here to bring to sign a lot of pros where, as you said, our, our base of operations or our strength right now is Europe based. And we're making, we're making a push into other areas, you know, Kazakhstan, you know, the areas that you're finding some of the stronger Olympians coming out of now, um, making some pushes into the developing nations, you know, between China, India, you know, we're trying, we're trying to have a broad base of operations. South Africa, you know, we've got Colin Nathan, you know, who I, I consider one of the best young trainers in the world. He's heading up MTK Africa with, you know, just guys, we, you know, Mike Altamura working with them based out of Australia, but also working in, in Africa. We, we want to develop the fighters that make sense globally. Right, right. Well, you have, I mean, that, and, and I guess, you know, in order to develop those fighters, you need the TV dates. So I guess, you know, you, you need television and, and the money from television to, to make those shows happen. And you did do the, the deal with ESPN. Now, it's 30 shows a year. Um, and I think Aram said that it was, it's in addition to the, uh, the international events uh, that they already had uh, set aside for on, on ESPN+. Plus. Uh, Break down that deal for me and, and what it means to MTK uh, Global. Again, as with anything, you know, it's exposure, exposure, exposure. With so many fighters, you have to keep them busy. Right. And, and you know, with that many dates, it works out great because we can... A good way to put it, I guess, is you need the public to see fighters. 
the best thing back in the day with ABC and then ESPN was you saw the same fighters over and over again. I don't want to say every every other week, but you know, it, it bred familiarity with them. Right. You know, back in the eighties, with you know, you saw with the Breelands and the Holofield and everybody else, and then so they continue with ESPN and so and so so and so. It's hard when even the best fighters, you only see them once, twice a year. It's hard to build that real public adoration for them. Right. You know, it's, it's you, you need you need the public to see the fighter face-wise, name-wise, a number of times, four, five, six times a year. So having to fill that many dates with that many fighters, we want a lot of, you know, we want a number of our fighters fighting on a number of occasions on the ESPN level cards. And when they won't be on the ESPN level cards, we've got our own IFL TV, you know, small subscription network that we'll put the fighters on so you can see them. We, we, we want the public to get behind the fighter because they feel like they have a rooting interest and to get a rooting interest because you have to have seen them a number of times. And listen, you could, be, you could be building the hero. You could be build, building the villain. Both do just as well on television. Right, right. Well, it's a stream. You know, yeah, your, I was going to say, is it, you, you, you mentioned the IFL TV deal, and that's, that's uh, you're live streaming um, 24 uh, premium fight night shows. Um, that's interesting. So now those would be... Um, over and above what you're doing on ESPN, those you wouldn't be broadcasting. Like there's no crossover of those two, right? There's no, um, like no, it wouldn't, there, there, it wouldn't no, be the there, same there show. There is crossover. No, okay, there, there will be crossover. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. The, ESP, the ESPN shows are limited to ESPN Plus, obviously, which has a certain border wall put into it. So outside of that area, we can go on, you know, put things onto IFL TV. Okay, 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 but but at at times there won't be crossover though, and, and those shows will Correct. will be on IFL TV. So, Correct. Okay. So wow. So yeah, the one we had one last night, um, and your call that was on IFL TV. Right, right. Was that the one with the uh, was Catterall on that one? No, Catterall's tonight. Oh, Catterall's tonight. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Jack Jack Tyson. You know what? Last night was a smaller, smaller club show. You know, Southern area, title. You know, UK based, UK based title, and a number of our prospects. You know, Stevie Ward, Michael Elliott, James Hawley. You know, those those type of guys who are again just getting started running. And then John O'Donnell, um, who's thirty two and two, I believe off the top of my head, was making his comeback. And you know, John after has been out for about two years, a year and a half. Uh, or so, you know, he's getting back into it now, and you know, he's gonna he could do some damage in the division as well. So again, we want to put a lot of the fighters on to keep them busy and keep them in front of the fans. Absolutely, absolutely. So <clears throat> I'd probably I'd probably be remiss if I didn't <clears throat> ask about with the MTK. I mean, there's been a few incidents in in you know in last couple of years with with you know the violence at the weigh-in and and canceling some shows. Um, you know, uh, there's you know people. The Irish press made a big deal about you know uh, Daniel Kinahan's involvement. Is he still involved with uh, with MTK? 
Daniel Kinahan? No. He's no, it's just, yeah, he, he's agreed to he's agreed to step aside, and he he perfectly understood what the issues were, and you know, in fairness to Daniel, I've met very few people who have a fighter's best interest at heart, more of a best interest at heart than than Daniel. You know, he may, he may himself admit that he always go about it the right way, maybe not. But never anything malicious. Daniel, you know, anytime I've spoken to him in the past, has always, you know, what's best for the fighter, what can be done for the fighter. So, you know, I, I can't, I certainly can't fault him for that. Gotcha, gotcha. Is there a still there? There's the the ban is over with uh, with the Irish media then, right? The, the MTK is talking yeah. to the Irish media now. Okay, good, absolutely. Good. Good, good. So those are the incidents in the past, uh, in and away from boxing, it, it didn't give you any pause about about working with uh, with MTK. No, not none whatsoever. None okay. whatsoever. I, like I said, when I when I sat and spoke with the people, you know, it wasn't just dollar cents. It wasn't just you know how we move this fighter into the first position. How we get us get a title shot. You know, a lot of the conversation resolved, revolved around. Excuse me. You know. How do we help this boxer out, you know, in the long term? What can we do to, you know, put our, put our fighters at a better advantage when they leave boxing? Um, financially, how can we assist boxers? That, that appealed to me a lot. Gotcha, gotcha. So it's pretty much Sand, Sandra's like the driving force. Sandra Vaughn, the, the CEO, is kind of the, the driving force in the, in the money yeah. and so on behind, uh, behind MTK then. Sandra's terrific. Sandra's <laughs> smart, you know, brilliant, and same, same thing. She's got the boxers, and, you know, the boxers in the company's best interest at heart at all times. And very savvy about how to move things forward on those, uh, in those aspects of from personality-wise, how we drive awareness, how do we drive, you know, getting the boxers out there. Uh, one of the things we require of the fighters is it's in the, it's in the boxers contract that they have to make public appearances, but not for a sneaker company, not like that. It's, they have to go to a soup kitchen. They have to go to a children's hospital. They yeah. have to do things like that just to not, you know, keep it. It's to keep them grounded, but, to keep them, yeah, you know, I guess boxing's a very hard sport. I mean, there's few sports that you can say are even close to boxing, whether it be the training and just the the wherewithal just to get into a boxing ring. And you have to give somebody that opposite feeling at times to keep them on a on a, a level ground, you know, without. If you don't have the yin without the yang, maybe a maybe a bad analogy, but but you have to have that balance, right? And having fighters make sure they still always are connected to where they came from, and even if you're a multimillionaire, you still have to go still see where you came from and where you know the people who have zero. You still have to get in there and identify with them. 
Right. I, th- I think, you know, that that's what, you know, I mean, uh, definitely getting them out in the community amongst the people. I think that's what make, you know, Roberto Duran such a beloved figure because he was a guy who never, you know, never, you know, became one of these, you know, elite, you know, uh, stay away from the people, stay in his, you know, gated community kind of guys. He was always out with the people and that that, that made him a, a beloved figure. And I think that's 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 a great game plan. Absolutely. Listen, Tyson's here with Tyson's and the interviews and I'm going to give away, you know, all the money I made, I'm going to give my money to charity. You know, and everybody sort of laughed at it. So, I saw Tyson give a multi-million dollar check to a charity. Mm. He wasn't kidding around. Right, right. That's you know, a- and that's, but can everybody, is everybody in the position to do that or can everybody do it? Will everybody do it? No. But the fact that Tyson had the wherewithal Say it and follow through with it. Again, it's just just another reason that I'm, I'm impressed with the Tyson that people not may not necessarily know or identify with. Absolutely. Well, let's let's get into your your background um, and uh, and and how oh, you geez, know Mike Tyson. Oh, it's only got to run. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, just just so people know who you are, and just because it's really, really interesting stuff. I mean, you, you're you're a Connecticut native, right? Correct. And uh, and uh, you know, you were an amateur boxer um, as, as a youngster in the uh, '70s and '80s, right? You uh, did you what 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 weight what weight did you fight at? Welterweight and light middle. Okay. Okay. I saw somewhere it said that, you know, you're a master records keeper. Obviously, you would know, but it said you won 26 of 27 amateur fights. Is that right? Yep. Wow. 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 So you're damn good. Um, You sparred with uh, James Tony and Sugar Ray Leonard and Marlon Starling. Is that right? Yep. Sparred with a whole bunch of people. (laughs) I'll bet my face, the guy I used to love sparring with back in the ABC days, which this is sort of perverse, and I guess. I should know better. Do you remember Felix Savone? The Cuban of course, yeah. <laughs> Back in the ABC days, I went to Cuba a number of times. It got very friendly and very familiar with the Cuban team, and Felix and I hit it off. And I sparred with him on a number of occasions. <laughs> and that, that was interesting sparring. <laughs> you live to tell about it. You, did, I, I'm sure he got you with that right hand a couple times. <laughs> I got I clocked a few times, <laughs> but it, it, it was just that feeling of being with somebody who, you know, he, he listen, I, I'm not kidding myself. I know he took it easy at times because when I was sparring with Felix, I think he had already gone up to middleweight, um, but he loved sparring with me because I was completely ambidextrous. I would switch on him and move and bounce around, which at times flustered him, him a little bit. But it just made it so interesting and to see a guy coming at you with, if you remember, I mean, the figure, the, the build that he had. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, he was still somewhat one-dimensional. But as you said, boy, when he hit you, you felt everything. <laughs> I mean, a dad that you slipped and just caught off the shoulder, you could still get pushed back. <laughs> yeah, he's built like a superhero. Yeah, he's, he's you know, Savon is, was, was a legend. Um, oh yeah, and I, I definitely fought him in full reverse. Was, I'm not done yet. Before, so I had to go to war with him. That was not happening. I know. I mean, my I had a very limited uh, amateur experience, but uh, you know, I'm honest with people too. I'm like, listen, I was a runner. All right, I was not. A, I was not a slugger. I'm not a big puncher. I, I definitely move quite a bit. But 
But so, so you ended up um, going to the University of Connecticut and getting your degree in uh, mechanical engineering, correct? Got a degree in mechanical and minors in nuclear and material science. Ah, ah. So while you were in school, you, you were also, I mean, obviously you, you had started boxing, I guess, as a teenager and, and, and you got the boxing bug. So uh, when mm-hmm. did you start doing like heavy research on, on boxing? late 70s when I was in high school mm. I just I fell in love with it my, my grand, both my grandmothers loved boxing and especially my grandmother my mom's side up in wow your grandmothers <laughs> yeah and they would tell me stories about Rocky Marciano and Willie Pep and so and so so and so they loved boxing and I felt I, I played every sport imaginable and I played a number of them at a pretty high level but I just loved boxing just love the 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 again. I know it's trite that everyone says it's a mano a mano, but I love the fact that I won or lost on my own abilities, not depending on anybody else. I mean, I, I had a I had a rifle for an arm. I played baseball, you know. I I played football, but I played everything. But it's just boxing that just I, I just couldn't get away from it. Mm. Loved it from the first time I tried it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I know, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of, uh, um, you know, tonight's boxing program and Malcolm Flash Gordon. And, you know, I, I had uh, oh, my hero. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I used to co-manage fighters with Johnny Boz. So, um, you know, when I, I was looking through some and, and I remember seeing your name in there. How did you get it involved with uh, Malcolm Gordon? My dad who I just lost my dad a couple months ago, was my hero. My condolences. Um, not ashamed of saying it. You know, I, I love my dad like nothing now. Hmm. Like you wouldn't believe. Um, he let me go when I was, you know, in my young, early teens. He would let me go to New York. He, he saved up money, and he brought me my first two fight cards at Madison Square Garden. Hmm. And then after that, he, in the mid to late 70s, he would let me go down on my own. And I would start hanging around outside and met Flash and Don Majeski and Russell and Boz and Bruce Trampler and those guys. And it, it, it you know, it, it was like gold at the end of the rainbow, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. <laughs> to meet these guys and to talk to them and to learn from them, you couldn't learn from any better boxing brains than, than those guys. Yeah, it's amazing. Like all all of these hardcore fans of the sport, and and how you know all, all of you like ended up uh, working in the sport, other than Flash, <laughs> yeah, the ringleader. You know, you know. And, and and Flash kind of made a fortune. You know, very few people realize Flash used to paint trains, he used to sketch and then paint trains, and he was brilliant at it. His his evidently his etchings and drawings and paintings are sought after by collectors. Mm. But Flash evidently wouldn't even bother to sell them. They just say, you know, I don't, you know, <laughs> I'm not very good at it. And I don't know if he gave them away or what he did, but he was evidently phenomenally talented with that. Yeah, he seemed like but he, I Flash, mean. Flash just, just hanging around Flash was just such a treat. Cause you, you want to talk unfiltered. <laughs> and, if, you know, Flash, you know, not just knew the game, but had just such an instinctive feeling for the right and wrong about everything around the game and wasn't afraid to say it. 
Right. And was and was fearless about it. Absolutely. Yeah, those are treasures. Those tonight's bo- boxing programs. I mean, I'm I'm always trying to get my hands on them. I don't have a complete collection, and they're just amazing to read because it's kind of like the uh, unfiltered history of boxing, you know, <laughs> from the late '60s on to the to the mid '80s. It's uh, oh it, yeah, it's, uh, same thing. Just used to love getting, used to look forward to getting them, and you know, I, listen, I was lucky. Flash took a liking to me, called me the boy wonder of boxing, and then. Mm. When he put out his East Coast record book, he had my picture, one of my fighting pictures in there. And I think he put my record in there as professional. But I think I fought, like, Chernobyl Kid. And, <laughs> it, you know, that's, uh, and you, you remember Flash's sense of humor. Oh, my God, yeah. The, the, the opponents, the, yeah, that he, the names he put in are just hilarious. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because my nuclear engineering background, he, he had me fighting on like, radioactive fighters. <laughs> but you, you, you couldn't beat it. I mean... As, as you know, people would look at it as being, oh, that's silly. But you know what? It's just an immense source of pride. Oh, think Flash, yeah, Flash would think enough of me at the time to do something like that. Sure. I, I couldn't have been, you know, prouder and happier to, to, to be in that book. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'll have to, I'll have to look you up now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so at a certain point, you became a, a associate editor of the, of the Ring Record book as well? You, were, you worked on uh, the Ring Record books, which, which ceased right. to exist after 1986. So this would have been early 80s or so? Yep. Okay. Yep. So- uh, I just, I, same thing. I, I would just go hang around Ring Magazine and Bert and, you know, Herb Goldman, who is, just you know, an unsung hero to boxing. Mm. You know, all the amount of work that Herb, you know, Herb put his lifeblood into boxing for so many years, and just some of the, the amount of errors that the original Ring Record book had, and through the to Johnny Orton, Matt Bay years, to what you know, what Herb tried to turn it into. I, again, I I don't want to say boxing really does owe um, a, a debt of gratitude to Herb Goldman. And Herb would Herb would open up the Ring magazine and record book and let me go in there and touch around and look through the old files and let him let me help him out. And at the time, I really started collecting all you know, really compiling records, and I would give them every, anything they wanted. You know, it was on, an honor to do so. Oh, that's great. That's great because you you also worked with. Did you work with Ralph Citro or who did you work with at the, at the Fight Facts yeah. record book? Yeah, Ralph as well. Yeah, it would help Ralph compile records, and at the time I started also compiling all those, all the judges' scorecards. You know, the names of all the judges and the referees, and right. all the statistical information around title fights. And I would just give them to Ralph. Again, I love boxing so much, and always have. I would never charge for any of that. Mm. So whatever Ralph, whatever Ralph wanted, you know, whatever Ring wanted, it was just theirs. Again, it was an honor to do so. Yeah, I mean, listen, you you also, uh, in fact, I think I actually uh, flagged some of your research and uh, sent it to the current Ring editor, uh, <laughs> um, uh, Doug Fisher, uh, in regards to uh, stuff you did for the IBRO. It was uh, Sugar Ray Robinson's amateur record, because one of the writers had published something about Sugar Ray being 85-0 and 0 as an amateur, and I'm like, I know Bob did some stuff on this that, that <laughs> disproved that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that it's funny. That's one thing I've taken up over the last couple of years is get studying compiling the amateur records for as much as is available of a lot of the great champions. 
because, um, you know, we both have, you know, amateur records are fluid at best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I'm, I'm a believer that somebody, let's say, on the cusp for a Hall of Fame career, you know, the guy could have been an Olympian. The guy could have been a multi-time national champion in the amateurs. Why isn't that part of his boxing career? Right, right. And so some of the guys were phenomenal amateurs, never went anywhere the pros, and some of the greatest pros had lousy amateur careers. Right. But, I, you know, I, I want, you know, from my standpoint, I'd love to see that information as part of the amateur, you know, or part of a fighter's record, not included as a prof- professional, but as a footnote. Hey, here's, here's a bunch of his amateur fights. Here's what he did as an amateur. Yeah, I'd love you know, to get, see get, like like a box rec for amateur boxing. That would be, uh, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly ambitious project. But I think, oh, that would be amazing. It'd be so great. Yeah, I've done. I've been doing all the U.S. Olympians, all the amateur records, um, a lot, a lot of the world champions. Yesterday, I was just trying to finish up Wallace Bud Smith, mm. and I was on, I was on the library with Springfield, Ohio, just working on some Davy Moore amateur fights. Mm. <laughs> you know, Springfield rifle. Just stuff, I have I have tons of amateur stuff that I one of these days I have to just send over to Ibro and send over to um, Hall of Fame so they can have it. Uh, it'd be great, yeah. It, uh, it'd be nice if you have in and box rec as well. If you, you, I'm sure you've done work for box rec as well. But um... oh yeah, I've, I've put a lot, a lot of work into box. I corrected. You know, I just got done correcting Azuma Nelson's record, David Cote's record. You know, I've I've Rich Duran, Aguayo, Peter Hoffre. You know, I, I I love going into the local newspapers uh, in foreign countries and getting the correct records. Mm. So I, I, I switched Aguayo's record around considerably by looking through the old Managua papers, you know, Brazilian papers in Sao Paulo and Rio for Hoffre, you know, a bunch of those guys. Azuma's Nelson, I changed quite a bit. Um, mostly dates, but again, you know, a lot of re- a lot of information. Unfortunately, is taken for granted. And as you said earlier, that's why I love going down to Mexico and to Emeroteca and yes. researching the old re- researching old records. Right. Absolutely. No. Well, thank goodness you do it because yeah, I mean, it, you know, we definitely as as fans uh, appreciate that uh, very much. Um, so, having done all you know a lot of this stuff gratis, what was your official first job in boxing? Huh. You got paid. <laughs> I guess it would have been ABC. ABC when, around around what what year? Mid eighties. Mid eighties. When they want when they wanted to make Alex Wallow a Alex Wallow the producer. Sure, legend. Yeah. At the time, yeah, I had already been doing work for for all the networks, supplying with statistics, mostly ABC. Um, but at the time, I was working as an engineer, nuclear engineer, and when I wanted to make Alex an announcer, they were kind enough to ask if I'd like to come on board as an associate producer. Ah. Yeah, I, I think I saw an article on you. I think it was for the 84 Olympics where they said you were the chief statistician for uh, ABC's uh, coverage of the 84 uh, Olympic Games. And um, you had to come up with information on 359 boxers and only about 75 spoke English. <laughs> 
That's about right. So uh, they, they said they, they estimated you got, you saw at least a part of every bout, and there was you know like about three hundred and thirty some bouts um, at, at that at that Olympics. So that's that's just a feat in itself. That's amazing. <laughs> So now, and like you said, you were a nuclear engineer at this time, right? You were you were at a combustion engineering in in Windsor, Connecticut. So you had a full time job, correct? And correct. Uh, and and you were doing this for ABC. So you just took vacation to go to Los Angeles, or they they let you off of work yeah. for that? They a combination of the two. It, it helped having you know one one of my friends was also or my dad's best friend was also a VP of the company. So ah. They realized it's good, you know, a little bit of good, good PR for the company as well. Sure. Even though it's totally, you know, diametrically opposite of anything the company did, but right. it looked nice in the company paper and everywhere, you know, surrounding surrounding papers as well. Sure, sure. A little publicity never hurts. It's great. But they also listed you in articles as an advisor on ratings to the WBC and the NABF. So when did you uh, first start doing that? Just around about nineteen eighty, you know, late seventies, early eighties. Um, same. I was just, just I, I wanted to immerse myself in the sport, and I started hanging around as much as I could and writing to Jose Suleiman and you know the the WBC. And Jose was kind enough to bring me on board when they started the first ratings committee. Is I was I was part of it. Oh, that's great. That's amazing. It's amazing. So. I think you know by the late '80s or so, and you you were an assistant programming director at at ABC. Um, mm-hmm. So this is interesting because the '80s, um, you know, I mean, network television kind of had a re- renaissance like in in the late '70s with boxing. They kind of rediscovered boxing, although Don King almost killed it with the uh, with his uh, tournament that turned out to be uh, you know kind of bought and paid for. Um, and, uh, all the, all the conflicts of interest and so on. I mean, uh, that, that, that's another podcast in itself, but, um, but, uh, but you had a lot of boxing on and, and, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, and, and the 84 Olympics obviously fed into that. You had so many great, uh, gold medalists and fighters come out of that who started off on, on ABC, but then at a certain point, HBO just kind of started poaching fighters. So, Kind of talk Correct. talk me through that 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 era. Again, it, it it was a bit of a renaissance, and a lot of the a lot of it occurred because of '84, and then ABC between the amateur events and the you know the amount of time they put into the pros and everything else, and CBS and NBC. You know, I'd, I'd be remiss of not saying all the networks contributed to a great renaissance at the time. Right. You know, you had the Boom Boom Mancini. You had all all these fighters that people really wanted to see. Well, you also mentioned their amateur fights. You actually got to see like dual meets between the U.S. and Russia, the U.S. and Cuba on on national TV. Yeah, and that that's how you know, as I said earlier, the public got familiar with fighters, and they got interested in their life story. And ABC was better than anybody with the up close and personal. And you really got to know the fighter, good and bad. And right, ABC that, almost that, almost like created that, right? Like people talk about, oh, you know, HBO's twenty four seven. Well, up close and personal was long before that, and that was on ABC. Oh yeah, it, nothing against anything that's come since, but 
the creative minds at ABC, and I, I'm not certainly not saying me, but the production people they had there were just unparalleled. The ideas they had and the way they covered boxing and other sports as, let's just say, intelligent as that was supposed to be, because you know my engineer, my engineering degree, so and so, so and so. I stood back a lot of times, just marveled at some of the things that these guys came up with and what they did. Hmm. And they were they were just master storytellers. They really were. Absolutely. You know, and, and and the great storytellers now, the people that I think are just terrific storytellers. You know, Nancy Stearns, Emily Deutsch, you know, a bunch of the greats, you know, that are out there now, learn from these guys. Hmm. Hmm. That's wild. So. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the 84 Olympians turned pro on ABC. There was also a, a young Mike Tyson, uh, who was a class of 84 and, and also yeah. a, a young Riddick Bowe had, had a bunch of his, uh, formative fights on, on ABC. I think people kind of forget that, 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 you know, they were, you know, all pretty much all throughout the eighties, there were still very major fights on, uh, network television, even though HBO was, was kind of, you know, outbidding the networks on a lot of this stuff. Absolutely. And listen, I always considered HBO, and I, I thought Lou Seth and Lou DiBella did a tremendous job. But in, in a way, they also did a bit of a disservice. And I know people are going to be maybe upset about what I'm going to say, but, you know, they, they almost drove the networks out of business for their own, for their own business, which you, you can't fault. Listen, it's it, it's still a business from HBO's standpoint, so they did what's right for the company. But it took away that, let, let's equate it to baseball. They took away the AAA. They took away the minor leagues, in effect. And so fans missed out on the whole development process and the whole familiarity process of building fighters. So right. that whole, you know, the, the hagglers and everything that, when HBO and then Showtime really got strong and really got um, noticed by the public, it was a, it was familiar fighters, and it's fighters that had to last a little while. Then as time went on, the fight it was harder and harder to build fighters because there was no ABC, CBS, NBC to develop the fighters. And you have to remember the reach of the three networks far exceeded. HBO's and Showtime's reach. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, the average fans started. Go ahead. The average box fan started disappearing because there was, you know, there was no more development of the fighters. They didn't get to see the fighters come along from the four, six, eight round. Not that, not. I'm saying that ABC was not CBS, NBC. We're not putting the on the fighters at the the four, six, and eight round level. You didn't see them a couple times there, but you know, once they start hitting their stride and or you know coming out of the Olympics, you you, you lost that develop that level of development. Right, and and I think for the networks too, you know, what what was the incentive for them because they weren't getting you know as as they say in today's parlance the vertical, right? I mean, they they you know they build these guys, and then HBO takes you know the big fights, you know, and and they they reap the benefits, and for the for the networks, it's kind of like, oh, well, why are we building fighters so they leave and go to HBO? <laughs> you know, right, they, absolutely. I mean, about what you saw and 
you know, late 70s, 80s, you know, especially in the, you know, mid to late 70s, started, you know, you saw the, the Carlos Manzones against Rodrigo Valdez. You saw the Ali Spinks and all the Ali fights. You saw all the big fights on ABC. And then again, then HBO and Showtime come along and they take away that level of fight. But the way they did it financially, and that, that was the thing I was always curious about. Why, if we were going to go in, we being, let's say, ABC, let's say we were going to bid X amount for a fight, why did an HBO or Showtime go in with 10X? Where 2X would have gotten the fight. Right. I, you know, and the answer <laughs> I always said, well, to make sure the fighter didn't go back, you know, did, didn't go backwards, or didn't, you know, they stayed loyal to us. As I, but that doesn't make sense on a growth scale. You know, and I, I always wanted to make deals. You know, once it, once it got apparent that the higher level was just looking to not necessarily take the ABC level out of there, but the way they were approaching it was basically negating the importance of that. It's like, guys, let's try it on. Let's figure out a way that we act as the development part for you. Right. You know, it doesn't, you know, we don't have to do the Chagla Hearns on the ABC. We know we're not going to do that. But the next step down where you get to see, instead of seeing Hagler once every six months, once every, you know, once every nine months, you see him once every three months. Right. It's, you know, you, you give him an easier title defense. And I, again, Hagler may not be the right case because obviously he was a, a high level fighter high-money fighter as well. But guys who, who you had seen being built up on ABC, let's say a Pernell Whitaker or Mark Greeland, um, instead of jump, or even a Vander, you jump them up to HBO level, you, you bring them back down just to keep them in the public eye periodically. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, and, uh, in my last podcast, I had Steve Farhood on, and he was talking about uh, a graph he did of, you know, just top fighters from like the 40s and 50s, you know, all the way to present day. And, you know, just on, on how many fights a year they had. And, and it, you know, it's obviously it just goes straight down. I mean, the, the top fighters today are maybe fighting once, twice a year. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, people people won't know you, you know, and then they complain about visibility and how nobody knows who they are. It's like, well, you know, it, 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 if you're not out there fighting and people don't see you, they're not going to know who you are, you know? I mean... Exactly. You know, I mean... Exactly. Sal I remember Salvador Sanchez fighting on ABC, defending the title maybe five, six times in one year. I mean, you know, people still remember who Salvador Sanchez is because of that, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm off the top of my head... I think Salvador won the title in February, defended it in April, June, and then I think in August again. Right. Right away. It was like Roberto Castellon. And, and good uh, fighters, too. Those were all no, like competitive so, fights. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He, he knew. And you know as well as I do. Training is almost, and at times harder on a fighter, training five, six, seven days a week. Than the fight itself, right? So why, why not fight and make the money? Can we even non-title fights? It's one of the things we're talking about now is having our champions evolved in more non-title fights. Just keep them active and keep them focused. Absolutely, 
and keep them in the news. Keep the light on, you know, as, as Todd DeBuff likes to say, keep the light on. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's not enough to just be out there on social media. You got to fight. You know, you got to have people see you fight, you know, and, and build interest in the big fights. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not absolutely. rocket science, look, but it's it's just kind of gotten out of practice. It's not the custom and practice these days. Correct. And listen, part of the issue is obviously financial. Right. I mean, the, the difference between the 70s and 80s to now from a financial standpoint with sports, uh, not just boxing in particular, sports in general, kids, it, it's, it's a huge swing. The, the dollars have become astronomical. Right. So to, convincing a boxer that it's in his best interest to fight, you know, we don't want you to go into the ring for a million dollars. We want you to go into the ring for fifty thousand dollars in a non title fight. But you, know, you think it's non title for fifty thousand is still pretty good pretty good money. But whatever the case may be, it is it's it's harder and harder to convince fighters of that. Right. 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 And and the tack you do have to look at is what's best for the fighter and it may not be as I said, staying in the ring for all you know, just training constantly. Get in the ring in a you know relatively safe non-title bout. Just keep active, and as you said, keep the light on, keep your name, your face, keep it out there. Yeah, I thought you know the 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 you know the only example almost uh, nowadays was Triple G. You know, I mean Triple G would take a couple HBO fights, but then he'd he'd go off HBO and go to Monte Carlo and and get another title defense in just to stay busy and sharp. Um, Absolutely, it definitely didn't hurt him at all, you know. And it, it, it grew his grew his uh, appeal, you know. This is a guy who stays active, and hey, there's another Triple G fight coming up, you know. Um, so yeah, totally. So listen, let's let's. Uh, so it, you you were the chief. Uh, you were the the <laughs> the L.A. Times called you the boxing chief at ABC in '92, but at at a certain point you switched over. Um, and I mean, maybe you even kept the same title, but you were at, at ESPN and you started uh, running uh, ESPN's uh, boxing program. Um, Correct. So uh, at, at what point did, did you start uh, with, with ESPN in, in their boxing program? ESPN really, really wanted to ramp up the programming and they had decided they wanted to move, not just move away from top rank, yeah. It would be fair to just say that. They, they wanted to expand their boxing, and they wanted to expand it beyond top rank. And at the time, obviously, I was at ABC, and they asked ABC if I would be basically shared by the two companies. And so that's how it developed. When they, when they wanted to expand, um, and at the time, boxing at ABC was ramping down a little bit. And right. I don't want to see the writing on the wall, but it was becoming less and less important. You know, and at the time, I was also doing a number of other things at ABC. Uh, I'd been I'd producing pieces for, you know, twenty twenty, you know, some primetime programming and others. You know, I expanded out into other sports, doing a lot of other things. But you know, boxing being my first love, when the opportunity came and they asked me if I wanted to do it, it was absolutely. Excellent. Well, you you kind of oversaw like the the reboot of of ESPN Boxing. I guess when when you know around the time Bill Caton sold his fight collection to ESPN um, for yep. for what was you know an astronomical amount at the time, and and uh, he he had a vision for it. You know, combining like live fights and classic fights, and and you know um, he was made a consultant. And Russell Peltz was brought on as a matchmaker. Um, 
that was you know really interesting time and 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 you hired um you know Max Kellerman and Brian Kenny so talk about uh hiring those guys and and what the philosophy for uh programming uh, on on ESPN was at the time I did it was it was to broaden the audience and like the the classics you know Bill King Vibrary was more to start um, Steve Bernstein at Bornstein at the time had the vision of ESPN Classic and realized the importance of the Big Fights library. And so basically, I don't want to say overpaid, but paid a, paid a tidy sum to buy the library to basically get ESPN Classic up and running. Yeah. Right. I'll tell you what, one of the most fun jobs. I had to do the due diligence, due diligence on the library <laughs> and go in and go in and view a lot of the films. That was that was that was a good part of the job. <laughs> the labor of love. A lot of fun doing that. <laughs> Absolutely. But they, you know, again, they want boxing was enjoying a nice resurgence. Because so okay, the other thing you got to look at is long term. How do we keep this appealing to a younger audience, if at all possible? And Max had his radio program that was very popular, and you know. Bringing Max in just seemed like a, a great thing to do because Sharp, you know, not, not afraid to say his mind, you know, zero learning curve when it came to the sport. Right. So it seemed like, seemed like a great fit. And then guys like Brian Kenny, same thing. Brian was just, Brian's just a natural. Brian, you know, Brian, you could put him from a, a sport he'd never seen in his life, give him five minutes to prepare, and he'd be ready. Brian tended more towards old school. He just kept himself available and ready and studied and was just great, great on camera and, you know, great at leading Max in and out. Yeah. It was a great great pairing. You know, I I, I would love to say that I I was the one responsible for pairing him. The the director time, Billy Graff, had ESPN, um, had the idea to pair him. There was a, Smart move, right from the top. Right Absolutely, I, I just appreciated at the time that there was actually a studio show that 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 you know got into the sport of boxing. It told you what was going on and so on. It just wasn't like you know, hey, here here's the fights. You know, I mean, you actually had a uh, you know talking about the state of the game and and what was going on in the sport. I really loved it, and I thought you know Max and Brian did an amazing job. Um, yeah, yeah, we really wanted to educate, and it was a, it was a time where communication and everything was getting more and more available to everybody and it was easier to pick up on not just results but the, the scuttlebutt was easier to get 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 a hold of so it was like you know what let's make this accessible to everybody right right it was kind of the beginning of the internet too so that was uh that, that kind of coincided with with all that so you had a lot of these uh, you know a lot of different you know more than the traditional sources uh to to, to go on um, interesting too. There was a decision because um, Al Bernstein had been kind of the voice of ESPN boxing from almost the beginning, and uh, he was he was let go, and, and Teddy Atlas was hired. So, so how did that decision come about? That was again trying to lean more towards a younger demo. Um, I would love to say I was a thousand percent in favor of it, um, but I, I had some reservations i thought teddy was great but you you know i also thought at the same time you still have to 
not you, you can't alienate your core audience. And boxing at the time was you know is, is still skewing older. But yeah, in the long run, it worked out for everybody. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, Al, Al's doing just fine. <laughs> oh yeah, no, you know, and, and Teddy's obviously made a a little bit of a name for himself. <laughs> exactly. And the, and the funny thing is, you know, the trial for Teddy was actually we put him on ABC when Alex got sick at one point. We had to bring in, we had to figure out who to pair up with Dan Deardorff, I think it was Dan at the time, um, for a couple of quick shows. And, you know, I brought Teddy in, and he, 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 he did fine. So we said, okay, when it came to um, go to ESPN, Teddy already, you know, he's already proven himself. So let's go. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, towards the the end of, I mean, you know, it was a very successful run. You know, uh, great ratings at the beginning. You know, but by the end, uh, it, you know, when in thinking back on it now, it, it seems incredible. But that that you know, I mean, ESPN boxing had a very moderate budget. I mean, from I mean, I think it started. I mean, I just you know, I, I had a bunch of fighters fight on it as well. So I remember it was like around six, you know, around sixty five grand, I think, per show. Um, towards the beginning and towards the end, it was like, it had been cut to 50 and then it got cut to like, you know, you bring your own sponsors. Um, seems yeah. kind of in, yeah, incredible they're, they're, now with all of the money in the sport that that was the case. But yeah, talk about, uh, the budget getting cut by, by the end there. Yeah. You know, at the time ESPN was expanding and, you know, with expanding audience, you have to get expand, you know, more and more sports and, you know, more and more high end sports and, all sports were starting to increase their revenue streams and their rights, rights fees. And boxing was a fairly constant with the amount of money they were bringing in. So they had to divert money elsewhere to be able to afford the bigger money sports. And so the rights fees got cut, you know, more and more. And there was a time where I was literally talking to people, I don't want to say groveling, but it's like, guys, you know, as you said, you got to bring your own sponsor. I don't, I don't have any rights fees. So I, I was trying to take rights fees from other sports and try to divert part of it into boxing where I could actually afford to get fights on. And then, you know, it, it worked. It wasn't the best scenario. You know, if, if you were a promoter at the time, and that's why you'll see, we, we tried to give a lot of promoters who you would previously never ever had seen on network television or on, on an ESPN. I mean, we, we were going to some pretty exotic places. Let's say. <laughs> right, right. Um, but we were trying to give everybody a chance to develop their fighters and have a chance of getting on ESPN and see what can be done. And they were at the time willing to accept lesser right fees for that opportunity. Right, right. And, and for a little while, it was a combination of that and, you know, the, the guys who were getting money from elsewhere, being able to take a little bit of a hit because, again, they they're had other revenue sources. So there, there was a time where right fees were <laughs> minimal at best. Absolutely. That was, that was hard, you know, from a personal standpoint because you're, you're trying to tell guys you you done business with for years and who you consider friends guys put on a great show but oh yeah i can't give you much money 
Right, right. It's like you, 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 you've got your legs cut out from under you. <laughs> you know, it's just. It, I remember there was a really, it was a really tough time. It was a really tough time in boxing. So it's, and, and you, it's funny now that I'm on the other end of the other side of the equation. It's always the funny thing about boxing when you think of from the television side. You're trying to get the best fight for the least money, and you're going in with the promoters who are trying to get the most money. For the least dangerous fight, <laughs> right? So it's always where you know come up with the, the negotiation for all right. What's what's the best way to service the public? You know, let's not overspend and let's get the best fight we can for whatever we can afford. So, you know, I, I thought for years and years we did a great job. You know, ESPN was you know, ABC at a time where the other networks had bailed. KBC tried for as long as they can. And you have to give credit to them for staying in the business as long as they did. And at ESPN at the time, they too, listen, could they have pulled the plug to gone out, taken the the allowable budget and gone to other sports completely? They could have as well, but they opted not to because they wanted to service the existing fans. Absolutely. And you have to give them credit for that. Regardless of slashing the budget, everything else, they were, you know, ESPN was still willing to stay in the game and fight it as hard as they could, no pun intended, but <laughs> fight as hard as they could to keep the sport alive and viable on television. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, even even with the, I mean, you know, you're competing with, I mean, not really competing because you, you decided to go on a different night of the week. I mean, on, on you know, you kind of put your flag on, uh, planted your flag on Fridays. Um, yeah. But, you know, you had the HBOs and the Showtimes that were kind of taking all, so you guys were... I don't want to call it like triple A boxing, but it wasn't like boxing at the highest level. It was, you know, sometimes it was, you know, just good club fights. Sometimes it was contenders. Some, you know, and occasionally you guys would get like a world title defense as well. But um, absolutely. And I listen, Kurt. I'd be lying to you if I didn't say we went to some places just because boxing had never been there, mm. or it was, you know, you go to the on the deck of an aircraft carrier and. <laughs> You know, we we were doing things like that because you would hope the publicity of that would get fighters to tune, excuse me, get the public to tune in. Or uh, I'm sure you hated it when you guys went to the Playboy Mansion. I'm sure that was just like yeah, a- <laughs> uh, yeah. There, there were there were a few 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 spots that you you definitely enjoy going to. <laughs> but it was it was it was a little gimm- you know you had to resort to getting gimmicky and you know. Little tricks like that to get people to tune in because you, you couldn't afford to have the same old thing because then you, you you knew you're just setting up for viewer turnout. Right, right, absolutely. If you're gonna if you're gonna turn on the TV and just see two guys get into the ring without something else to attract your attention, and I'm not just saying Playboy models, but I'm just saying you know every everything else that would go go around for other events. Um, you, you needed to resort to that. Keep interest. Right, right, right. It is entertainment. It is entertainment as well. Um, so it's interesting. So you, you know, you, you, you took a, you know, you left ESPN and, and took a few, you know, pretty interesting positions. One with Mohegan Sun, and then you, you also, uh, you were also with uh, a sports network in Connecticut, a local sports network. Um, uh, yeah, the local, the local um, public television network. Wanted to start a sports network, and it's really 
me, literally had a chance to build it from square one, mm. and that that appealed to me immensely. And had a had a good time with that. And, you know, there there were those were very very interesting times. I can imagine. I can imagine. That's great. And at the same time, you were also working for the WBC, right? As uh, correct, you, I had a number of positions there. I, I mean, uh, I guess. Most interesting, uh, well, you're on the television committee and, and gloves and trainers committees, but chairman of the ratings committee, I, I think, is, is is kind of the most interesting one because if there's one criticism of, of the sanctioning bodies, it's that the the ratings don't match what you see uh, independent media having and that they may, you know, the, the, the best may not be, be getting rated. So how, you know, how, how does it work with the WBC and, and, and the ratings committee? Take yeah, us behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's a combination of things. You have people from around the world fielding managers, promoters, their phone calls, you know, requesting their fighters be rated, look, watching fights all over the place, you know, listening to the public as much as possible, watching, you know, everybody paying to it you know, trying to pay attention to their own geographical area while also keeping an eye on the sport as a whole. Everyone wants to see the big fights. And then once, you know, we, we communicate amongst each other. And then towards the end of each month, everyone would put in their recommendations about, you know, this fighter is good, this fighter just beat this fighter. And you basically come to a consensus on where everybody should be rated. You know, trying to be fair to everybody, yeah, there's a lot of circumstances that have to be taken into account. But, you know, we try to pride ourselves on being as least politically oriented as possible. And you have to remember that it's one thing that I have a little knock about with, not just the ratings, but even like Hall of Fames and things like that. With boxing, is a true world sport you have to as much as possible take a world view of it and not just U.S. centric or North American centric or Eurocentric. You have to look at it as what's best for boxing as a whole. And I'd be lying to you if I didn't say maybe a fighter from China or India or a developing nation maybe didn't get a little bump or two because you want to help that nation develop. You want to help develop heroes. But you would also do it, try and do it not at the expense of anybody else who deserved to be where they were. We always did our best to try and put the fighters who deserved to be where they were in the position that, that demanded that level of ability, the results, whatever you want to call it. We wanted to make sure the top five were absolutely correct, the top 15 were as good as we could possibly make it, and then, if, you know, going to the time now when it's 40, you want to get it as correct as possible with slight tweaks to possibly help, again, a, a growing nation or, some, you know, if there's some assist that needs to be done that isn't at the expense of somebody else who, who deserves it. Yeah, I mean, it, ratings, I mean, you know, having, you know, just kind of doing them on my own just for my own edification i think i you know at one point in time i was part of a, a press ratings poll independent poll i mean mm-hmm. you have you have to be a hardcore i mean because like you said it's a world sport 
Um, and, you know, unlike, you know, tennis where you have a tournament where everybody plays each other and, you know, you can kind of see who the best are just by head-to-head results, it doesn't happen that way in boxing. I mean, you really have to do a lot of approximating and, and you know, just kind of eye test and, you know, uh, and, and, and like you said, with, with fighters in, in, say, Africa or South America, you know, they may not fight anyone outside of their region. So how do you, how do you rate them against, you know, fighters in Europe and, and North America and Asia? So it's, it's very, very subjective. Um, I remember I, I used to write a, a kind of a, a Flash Gordon-inspired very article uh, called The Stench Test when I first started writing. It was very critical of the sanctioning body ratings and... Uh, I will not name the person who was on the WBC uh, ratings committee, but they kind of took issue with my column, and uh, and eventually I I ended up you know kind of corresponding with them, and they said, "Listen, here's what happens: we we get together, we do the best we can, we put our ratings together, and then we send it to Jose, and he does what he wants with it." <laughs> That's what he said about the BC ratings. I mean. Objectively looking at the ratings today, I would definitely say the BC has the 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 most accurate, you know, of 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 the sanctioning bodies. It it has the most realistic ratings. Um, you know, mm-hmm. obviously anyone can can tweak and and critique ratings, but uh, yeah, I would say you know the the, the ratings are, are are better than than they were at one time for sure. Hey, listen, as you said, the, the key is, and what people have to understand, is they really are subjective. And yeah, all the organizations, in an altruistic point of view, I'd say all all the organizations are doing the best they can. Uh, is that entirely believable? Maybe not. <laughs> it's a business too, but you know. That unfortunately, it's, it's, yeah, it's a business. Yeah, it's a business too, and you know, each organization has their own agenda and their, and their own ideas of how things should be. So you you work with. You, you work with what's put in front of you. Right, right, right. But there's, there's, no, there's no one body that gets it entirely correct, and there's no one person that can say, I know, I know conclusively that these are the ten best, and this is the order they shouldn't be in. Right, right. No, that's correct. Boxing, boxing is one of the ultimate sports where it can change with you know, one punch, one second, and everything's upside down. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. And so again, with with ratings, you do the best you can. You try and give a realistic portrayal of the sport and where fighters should be. And I, you know, you going to ever be a hundred percent correct? Never. Just it's just not possible. Right, absolutely. You, you do the best you can with what what you're given and what the parameters are. That, you know, the parameters that you're given. And you go from there. And you know, if you can sleep at night, great. If it bothers you all night, then you know, hopefully you've got the wherewithal to correct to try and correct it. Right. And I, listen, I would, I would, I wouldn't like to hear. Were there times? There are times in ratings meetings where people were close to fist fight. <laughs> we would literally, we would literally budget an hour or two for each division. Hmm. And we, you can get bogged down on the number twenty-eight straw weight for twenty minutes. Because <laughs> it, well, it, it's funny, but you, you you get people with passion about the sport, 
and you have to love and respect that. Yes, it's true. It's true. Yeah, having yeah. been on a poll, I mean, and, and you, you obviously ex- experienced it a lot more intensely because you were doing it every month, you know, and, and, and regularly. But, yeah, I, I mean, and there's 17 weight divisions, and you're rating 40 fighters, which is, you know, on, only box rec rates more, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, that I mean, that's it's not an enviable task, and it's a very tough one. I mean, you like I said, you, I mean, it's you have to be extremely hardcore. I mean, just seventeen weight divisions, even if you're rating a top ten, it's a hundred and seventy fighters that you have to know backwards and forwards, and you have to know like the you know five to ten guys who have a legitimate claim to a top ten spot. So um, you exactly. know, and you want to balance, and you get that's where you try and balance. If five fighters are all roughly the same. And I know I'm making generalities, but if you take five fighters who are roughly the same, I, who is who is a prospect that works for the long term? Okay, maybe we bump him up. Or who is next in line for a potential title? Okay, maybe he gets a little bit. Or who is in it from a developing country? Maybe that gets a little bit. Each fighter has something pro and con to balance them. Right. And listen, I mean, I, I don't think I'm betraying confidences here, but I, I remember at a certain point, you know, being on the phone with uh, one of the Mendozas at the BA and, and just complaining about, you know, listen, my, my guy's the mandatory. Why, why, why are you pushing an interim title fight on me? You know, I, I want to fight the champ. You know, that's the bigger fight. And he's just like, listen, the reason why we do all these titles is because, you know, we want the better fighters to stay with our organization. And, and if we can get them you know, a, a, a title, you know, and, and get them into the organization, then maybe we can we can keep them. And so there's that business aspect to it, because I know that the BC also has a lot of titles, and I'm sure that's kind of the incentive, is to is to yeah. get, get someone a, a BC title, and hopefully they'll, they'll want to win some more BC titles. Absolutely, absolutely. Listen, regional titles, I'm all in favor of. State titles, regional titles, all in favor of. Interim titles, <laughs> it's, 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 it's an excuse to abuse the system right right yeah believe me i'm 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 not at all advocating uh, for that at all i think it makes it kind of bastardizes the sport and and the idea of a, of a world champion um but yeah i, I mean I, I like i like you i you know the nabf and the usba that that type of stuff i always thought you know that's that's great you know it, it serves a purpose you know you have two young guys on the way up, you know, fight for this title and the winner, you know, gets in the top 10. That makes perfect sense. You know, they earn it. Um, it's a great idea, but, um, but all right, let me, um, let me just, uh, get, get to kind of the, 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 the championship around the questions here. Um, I've got Bobby Allen on the phone, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're someone who, you know, you produced, uh, boxing on, on, you know, both the major networks, you know, ABC, you helped out with the Olympics on NBC. I know you've done consulting at CBS um, and you ran, mm-hmm. you know, basic cable ESPN. So give me your view on the current uh, landscape of televised boxing in the U.S. I mean, you've got, you know, streaming, you've got, um, you know, uh, premium cable, you've got basic cable and you've got network TV all competing. It's it's a free for all. Yeah, and that's the best description of it. It's a free for all. Is it a resurgence of boxing on over the networks and everything? I I'm not sure I call it a resurgence because it goes back to what we spoke about a little bit earlier. You need to see fighters over and over again to build that 
familiarity and get the fan base. And UFC and the mixed martial arts in a lot of aspects have figured that out. And again, with, with anything, with the, with the current, how do you call it, atmosphere or just the way things are these days, shorter, quicker hits. And we've, we've all discussed this um, on the internet is it is more attractive to advertisers. So they, they look at a sport where it's not the potential prolonged chess match, which boxing can be, but I'm, I'm saying that in a, in a, I'm trying to say it in a positive way. You know, some of the, some of the mixed martial arts tend to be just like, the, it's almost like a sound bite, which is the way, unfortunately, the way our society has become. Everything soundbite, just in and out very quick. Instagram, everything else. That helps and hurts. You know, boxing is, is still great from a highlight point of view, but you have to be able to invest in it. And I mean invest by uh, time-wise. You have to know that you want to be able to sit there and watch a potential half hour, 45 minutes, uh, whatever it may be. Um, so you, you need fighters that the public is willing to invest their time to see. And I think that's where we have to concentrate more of our efforts is to see, I don't want to see the same fighters over and over in bad matches. No, but as opposed to something you said earlier, once, maybe twice a year, three, four times a year where you can develop that rooting interest. We need to develop the heroes and the villains that the public's going to get behind and want to see. And that's where the glut of networks you would think is positive because there's so many outlets, but each outlet has aligned themselves with a promoter or a certain alignment of promoters that at times will keep the fighters apart. And the idea is to get the fighters or get, getting to the promoters cooperating along some lines where the best fight the best at least once a year. And a couple of times a year, your guy is still out there fighting Maybe, you know, more often you're stable, but it should be, we really have to start looking at crossover into other stables, um, just for a long, long-term business. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I wrote an article in, in October that, you know, the time is right, you know, for, for a boxing league, and it's because there's so much money in the sport right now. I mean, I, I want to keep all of this money in the sport. I mean, there's literally, with all that the zone is spending, you know, it's 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 between like four hundred and five hundred million dollars, and and to me, like the 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 model for the sport is the World Boxing Super Series. You know, it's th- this is what every other sport does. They do playoffs. You know, e- even college football, which was as random as you could get, you know, with all these conferences and fifty million bowl games. They finally figured it out. People really want to see the number one. They want to know who the real number one is. So let's do a tournament. You know, even even as confusing and crazy and all the different side deals that conferences have, 
They figured it out. And I'm just like, why can't boxing do that? I mean, we, we're already doing it. You've got the World Boxing Super Series. You had the Super Six. I mean, you know, we and we even had a Boxing Promoters Association for a little bit where promoters got together, you know, and, and at least took a look at what they could do collectively. Um, to me, that that's it. I mean, you know, the, 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 the major players need to get together instead of trying to put the zone out of business or put Showtime out of business. Keep the keep all of this money in in the sport and figure it out. Like if if the zone can do three World Boxing Super Series tournaments in a year, why can't ESPN do one? <laughs> you know why can't Fox and Showtime figure out how to do one? You know there's 17 divisions in the sport, so you do five or six a year. You know, and every third year, you know the divisions go again. You know, I mean it, it gives time to crown a champ and have the champ exploit his title. I mean it's not rocket science, <laughs> you know, but it's just. No. It's getting yeah, these guys to do it. Is the key. Yeah, it's, just, it's just making everybody see that point. And again, as you said earlier, it's it's a business, and each guy, each promoter, where has, has a certain system. But it's it, it's it's you got to think long term and what's good for the health of the sport and how do you how do you combat the ills of the sport? And it's cooperation as much as as, as much as possible. Right, right. Yeah, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I mean, it, it's showing, you know. I mean, Top Rank doesn't have, you know, as as enough fighters to, to do, you know, by themselves, in-house, you know, a full year's worth of great programming. You know, they just don't. Nobody does. Even the PBC is, is struggling to do it. You know, they're putting on decent fights, but not the fights that people want to see. I mean, you, you just definitely, if they all cooperated, you'd have a, a, a juggernaut. You know, they they could create it, and there'd be more money. There'd be enough money for everybody, and enough great programming to keep four four uh, four channels in the money. You know, but uh, absolutely, and it's also you know with with viewers. That's you know that's why series are popular. That's it. you know, and that's why ESPN the Friday Night Fights were popular. You you knew you had to tune in viewing every Friday. You need to tune in to ESPN. You know, cavalcade sport. You know, start anywhere from back in the fifties. It's making it easier for the viewer, so the viewer doesn't have to go seek out. All right, where's the next time I can watch boxing? All right, now it's over here on this right. network. All right, so, so. it's just a way to build up some type of schedule, constant <laughs> schedule that makes sense. That makes it easy for the viewer, and it also, if you think, it makes it easier to go out and schedule venues. It makes it easier on fighters schedules to know that okay i know i'm gonna fight you know the, the third friday of every third month i can prepare myself right again that's not always viable i just i understand that I'm in a, and i know we're talking an ideal world but that's where we have to start pushing towards right because making viewers search out fights and search out fighters it it, it doesn't lend itself to popularity if you're, if you're putting Jonas on the viewer to go search you out. Right, right. It's a losing game. And, I mean, Burke, Burke Magnus, I mean, had, had said it at, at ESPN. I mean, the reason why ESPN got back in the game and, and, and big time with Top Rank was they saw what the PBC did. When the PBC, you know, put on really good matchups on, on ESPN, like really world-class, top-shelf boxing matchups, the ratings were awesome. You know, millions of people watched, and they got you know a younger demographic than they thought was possible with boxing. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the potential viewership is out there. 
Right. Doing it the right way and appealing to the appealing in the right manner. And that's that's up to the promoters and up to the networks to come up with the right formula that makes sense from every for everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess I'll 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 go with this one last question and we'll bring it back to uh, MTK. I mean, you've got the uh the second largest roster probably globally of of any boxing management company. I mean, only the PBC I would say is is bigger. Um do you eventually see uh, MTK being a, as big a player as as PBC in in, in global boxing? In an ideal world, I'd love to say yes. Yeah, are, are we making you know movements towards that direction right now? No. But again, the concentration is not just on the expansion of the, of the company; it's also on the expansion of the well-being of the boxer. And I really want to make sure we get that right and not stretch ourselves too thin. Where we're not looking after the people that are making, you know, the business you know, of boxing viable for us, and that's the fighter. You know, listen, I, this it, it, this gonna sound silly, and I don't, I'm I'm not even sure why I segue to this statement, but my respect for fighters are immense. I will I will never ever boo, regardless of how bad a fight is or how bad a performance is. But any fighter who has the guts to get into a boxing ring, to go through whatever training they have, especially obviously championship level, has all my respect. And I'll never, ever boo anybody who has the guts and you know, the wherewithal to get into a boxing ring. And so my respect for the fighters lends to the fact that I want to make sure fighters under MTK are as well taken care of as we can possibly do it. And if that's at the expense of a you know, global expansion, so be it. But to me, that's an important aspect of the game. I don't, I don't want to, I, you know, hopefully we never ever want to read some of the things you've read about some of the athletes and other sports, you know, where you read, Five years after we retire, seventy-five percent of these athletes are bankrupt. Right. You never ever want to, you know, it. it, it you never ever want to read that about a company you want you're associated with, or any organization you want to be associated with. So yeah. I really want to make sure we take care of our own house before we do anything. And I think if you do that. The fights and the fighters will come. And I think you do that at the right, at the pace that makes sense for everybody. Absolutely. And if you can get, and if you can get Kurt Emhoff on your side, <laughs> you got a big leg up. <laughs> well, Bob, you know, I wish you the best of luck um, with, with MTK Global. I'm very happy to see someone who, who has such a, a rich knowledge of, of the sport um, you know, get a position where where they can do something to help out uh, the great athletes of our sport and uh, and make it uh, a better sport. Really appreciate the time uh, that you took the time to to speak with me today, and and good luck with everything. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate it very much. And again, if there's anything I can help with or anything I can do, just let me know, 
And if you need to tap into all those amateur records I told you about, just give a holler. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. All right, my man. Take care. Have a good one. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and ringtv.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. I'd like to thank Bob Yalen for taking the time out to speak with me. I really enjoyed that conversation. And if you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. Really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that features quotes and background on my interview with Bob Yalen. And until next time, so long, everybody. Did you get what you was looking for?